0: Hello, 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 and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host, Vincent Victor Roche. That's right, it's the same pseudonym as last week. We're giving it some momentum here. Very pleased today to bring you this episode where I will be talking to White Rose Witching. White Rose Witching is a gay Hispanic folk witch in the Mid-Atlantic, a self-described social justice necromancer working with queer ancestors and an LGBTQ plus disability activist. And we're gonna be talking about a necromantic vision he had that included a call to action. And then the conversation continues into questions of necromancy writ large, community activism. He gives a recipe for a curse at some point, so some practical information here on you. It's a great chat. I do hope you enjoy it. The other big announcements today, there is still time for you to buy tickets for the class on book-based divination that I'm gonna be doing on June 9th through the Cauldron Black that is over Zoom. So you do not need to be in striking distance of Salem, Massachusetts to take advantage of that. So I do hope you get your tickets now. I'll have a link in the show notes to where you can. Uh, really fun thing, I was kind of, um, I was, uh, how you say, uh, dicking around on my phone and what should emerge suddenly but a video of music producer Rick Rubin talking about how he was working with System of a Down, the new metal band for the 1990s, and they were hitting a bit of a creative block. And so they used Bibliomancy to write part of the lyrics for their smash hit Chop Suey. Why did you leave the keys up on the table? You wanted to. Incredible. So be sure to check out that class. The other big announcement is that For the Gurls is doing a big fundraiser. They are a trans-led organization helping black trans women with paying for medical care and rent. And they're doing a big fundraiser right now, so I will have a link in the show notes to that as well. So you can throw a few dollars their way if you have the means. So without further ado, here is White Rose Witching talking about the dead, talking about the living and talking about the bonds of mutual care between the two.
1: They wanted nothing to do with me, so, which is fine, you know, like it, it, that's not that's sometimes how it works out. So part of the experiment was then switching track and working more closely with a spirit that I have a lot more familiarity with. And I was like, okay, you know, what if I try to engage with you as part of this process so it's it's la santa muerte is is somebody yeah since my like mid to late 20s so easily over a decade I've had sort of uh, a working relationship with her Um, it was one that I was called to I ignored it for a long time because I was just like I don't know why I'm feeling pulled in this direction but um, a lot of it really is just rooted in her her presence in the latinx lgbt community as sort of a a protector folk saint or protector saint and so a lot of my own spirituality it hinges on the fact that i am an out gay man a hispanic man so i was like cool you know let me what like let let me bring you into this i have an established relationship with you so let me try this process this ritual with somebody that i have an established relationship with and it was very successful (laughs) um and uh, and I didn't expect it to 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 be as vivid and successful as it was. And yeah, and so in the in the essay that I wrote, I really hesitated using this terminology just because of sort of like the current like socio political climate and stuff like that. But mm. in the essay, I ended up did referring to it as looking almost almost like a border crisis or a refugee crisis. And that's a lot of what I saw is being sort of in this landscape situation where there was at times either sort of like a river or some sort of precipice or a chasm and uh sort of like a backlog just like masses being pushed up against this sort of very defined physical boundary mm. um that are clearly trying to get to whatever's on the other side of it either up the the other bank or across the chasm or whatever might be there um and they're being either very limited at like points that you can make it across or um, in some places they're not being anything. And just this sort of um, almost like in a disaster movie sort of thing where you see people who are trying, like, you know, the crowd is trying to run and then the folks at the front get to the edge of a cliff and they're like, okay, no, we have to stop. But everybody further back doesn't know that that cliff is there and the crowd keeps pushing, pushing, pushing. Yeah. Um, so there was also that sort of sense of tension and culmination and just, you know, um, like this this wave is not stopping. And I think also what really made it, uh, what what really stood out to me, and I mentioned this in the essay too, is a lot of the necromancy that I do or the ancestor work that I do hinges around uh, human spirits, human ancestors. Yeah. Um, so I don't have a lot of familiarity, and I've have encountered other other spirits in, in in my work, but it's not my bread and butter. So, but what I what one of the things that stood out to me was sort of like mingled within that mass was animal spirits, plant spirits, these sort of like more abstract spirits that might be spirits of place and things like that. So it was this very overwhelming sort of sense of of shock, but also of urgency. There was a lot of urgency. And I came out of it, I think, in, in the essay I mentioned, like, you know, waking up and just having to like sit with it for a while. And I, you know, I, I journaled some stuff down, wrote wrote down what I saw, wrote down some preliminary thoughts that I had, um, sketched a couple of things and went back to sleep, you know, had a dreamless sleep, had a restful sleep. But still, when I woke up, I had this nagging sensation that I associate with her of the because um, I, I tend to be very stubborn. And so this the sense that I have with her of like, no, like I asked you to do something and I need you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, OK, all right. So. So I was like, all right, let me let me just share what I saw. And like the overall message being just like there is an emergency, there is a crisis. And and collectively, we have to do, you know, those of us who have the ability to do so. And by ability, I don't mean like inborn ability. I mean, but those of us who have the ability or feel the call to do something, um, we, we need to do that. But that also that this isn't just this sort of esoteric or occult thing that how do we work with the other side? A lot of what we need to do to address this is also firmly rooted in our like material physical
0: reality. So I want to talk about this call to action because I think it's important. It's sort of the point of the whole thing. But before we get there, this idea, I think there's a fundamental question. I feel like I, I need to start asking everybody I interview sort of like the five questions they do at the end of Into the Actors Studio. <laughs> or inside the actor studio, like, you know, um, which maybe that's a dead reference, but, you know, necromancy podcast, it's fine. I can do dead references. (laughs) Uh, But like, because you mentioned spirits of place in this vision, like I, like I was already prepared for this be kind of an expanded concept of, of the dead for, I think a lot of folks, because we're talking about the animal dead and plant dead, but like a place, what is a dead place?
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I think if you've grown up, so I I was I was, born in Miami, and I lived in Miami through sort of elementary school, and my parents moved to uh, to more central Florida, moved into the swamps. And so my middle school, high school, and when I would come home during college experiences was very firmly in the swamp. Um, now it's been like really overdeveloped, so it's very different from where I lived from, uh, lived at. But that also kind of plays into the idea of like, what is a dead spirit of place? But also, you know, I I didn't... I. I spent a lot of time in the water. My dad and I like rebuilt his dad's bass boat and stuff like that. And so we would go out on like canals and like Okeechobee and stuff like that. And, you know, the, the idea that's coming to mind really is, uh, Belglade. Glade. So Bell Glade is this predominantly historically black community just around like Okeechobee, uh, in Florida. It's, uh, for those who have read Zora Neale, Hur- Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God, it's where there it's where that takes place. And, it is and i think if you if you i know these are everywhere but i think especially if you grew up in the south and stuff like that you drive through a lot of places there are a lot of towns that i would say like these are dead places mm. um they are places that because of poverty systemic poverty addiction systemic racism places that have been choked of their ability to sustain life or exist beyond sort of survival or subsistence level and so they may not be dead places but in some places in some ways they're they're almost like zombie places or very feral places
0: something Um, is dead right like like i might my ma uh grew up in a in a mill town right in new england and that town is still technically there that mill is gone And that idea, that spirit of like, we're a productive place that everyone works the same building that smells very bad and makes everything else smell very bad. (laughs) Exactly. Because it was a paper mill and those are terrible. Like, yeah, I get, I think, yes, a thing can die and still live. I think. Yeah. And I want to
1: be very clear too, that I am, this is in no way sort of like putting value or judgment on the people who live in those places. Like, I'm not saying the folks who live in Stark or Beltway or any of these places are themselves, you know, feral, whatever it might be, but it's, it's you can know that you can feel even people who aren't necessarily attuned or really like paying attention to it. You can feel the difference between being in a town that has life to it, that has a vibrancy to it versus being in a town that in some ways, like it's like, there's no hope there, or there's this vacuum or void space or void feeling. Um, So I think regardless of, even if you don't consider yourself a magic practitioner, I think if you're just aware of human experience, you're like, Oh, these two towns feel very different.
0: Yeah, it's very much the classic American problem of you you can't go home again or or there's no direction home. I've been fixating on Bob Dylan a lot recently, which is probably (laughs) a sign that I am approaching my mid 30s. But okay, so dead places need to also potentially be be carried on. And so like this is actually there's the reason why I made the James Lipton comment is like I I, I feel like we're we've sort of gotten there, but I want to like just like lay it out explicitly like who were the dead, what are the dead, and where are they for you?
1: Yeah. So who, what, where. So, well, just to kind of keep this thread going about dead places and stuff like that, and in um, and in the essay, I talk about how you know I've said I've seen in my own life where the energy that gathers around the restless or the lingering dead can seep into a place and have disastrous impacts. And so, you know, if we want to talk about the spirit of a town, or the spirit of a of a of a city or a neighborhood or something like that becoming this sort of dead spirit or dying, but then not being allowed to move on or not knowing how to move on or or, or whatever might be keeping it there. I think ultimately at the root of this is, is a recognition that death is not this thing that is oh. separate from life, that it's separate from our experience. You know, I would argue that part of what makes life life is the fact that there is death. And so knowing, you know, and part of the human experience, I think is maybe being a little bit too aware of that, but especially sort of in like in, in the U.S., but also like in, in Western society or, or places that have been really impacted or touched by colonialism writ large, we have excised death. From our experience, we compartmentalize it. We, you know, put the dead or the dying in hospitals. We like we we try to, to put it behind the scenes and not look at it and not talk it as, about it as much as possible. And so I think because of that, that means that we as the living really don't know how to talk about it or how to acknowledge when it has happened, especially at scale. Like I'm thinking of like this Eddie Izzard skit where
0: their name uh i know i know it's not eddie anymore but i forgot what her name is now Um. so i actually looked this up after the interview and according to a june 3rd article from news.com.au eddie izzard is now going by both eddie izzard and susie izzard and it says that uh he or she are both acceptable pronouns but, you know, they talk
1: about one of their, like, older skits is talking about, like, how we don't, we don't, we don't, we can't conceptualize, like, genocide or, like, mass murder and stuff like that. Like, where if somebody's just, like, you know, like, oh, you killed one person, you killed five people, like, boo, you know, you can't do that. But it's like, oh, I killed, you know, 200 people. It's like, whoa, whoa, good on you. Like, you're very productive. Like, you know, so it's this, we don't know how to conceptualize death at scale or also death that doesn't particularly impact us. And so kind of circling back to this whole idea of like you know and the who is the dead talking about the genius loci sort of thing or spirit of place when these places maybe the promise of a town or to use your example like a mill town where the thing that has been the anchor of the town is no longer there and becomes a sort of like void or this open wound then how is that being healed Or how is that being acknowledged that it's no longer there? And one of the examples I give, you know, in the essay about when I say tending to the dead, part of it is tending to the needs of the living. And what do the living need, either individually or in community, to be able to acknowledge that something or someone has passed
0: and allow for that letting go experience? So the wounds of the dead are not just like in the dead. It is, it is, if you heal the wounded living, you heal the wounded dead a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because I think a lot of times, and, and I guess I'm talking from my own personal experience in this, I think a lot of times what holds the dead, what keeps them from, from. I hate using the idea of like crossing over because that's not really like in my cosmology, but but what keeps them from sort of transitioning to whatever wherever they need to go to or being able to kind of move on to whatever's next for them is an inability for whoever is remaining to let go. And I think to you know, a large extent, um, sometimes you you might work with uh, very cognizant, sort of like the, the intelligent dead. And when you work with them, they're like, yeah, like I don't feel like I can leave because the XYZ person uh still needs me to be here for them. Or, you know, unconsciously the living might be trapping the dead. They might be they might be preventing them from actually leaving a space because they've kind of put these psychic hooks in them without realizing because they haven't processed their grief or whatever they need to process in order to kind of allow both of them to move on to to transition to whatever the next phase of their relationship looks like. So the next phase next phase of their life. You know, and again another example that I put in the essay too was about collective or community grief. And the example I gave was COVID in the, in the US. And at the time that I had written this, uh, this essay, we had 1.1 million dead. And I think at the million mark, um, President Biden made some remarks about we had a million. But to a large extent, and I think part of this is the politicization of the of of COVID and what we should and shouldn't do to mitigate it, all these sorts of things. But to a large large extent, you know, what have we done either in small community or as a nation or as a world to like mark a mass death event and not having marked that what does that mean for one what does that mean for the people who have lost loved ones to see that like this loss is not being acknowledged. But also, what does it mean for those of us who are living to just, again, put something in the back and not look at it and say, We're, we just collectively don't want to acknowledge that this thing is happening, that this mass death event is happening. And, we, and to some extent, we don't want to remember the dead. Uh, we don't want to acknowledge that. And if you look at like historically, when we have had. Well, OK, uh, when we have had certain mass death events like war and stuff like that, mm. there have been these larger acknowledgments um, in my own town. There's like a memorial to the dead in the town who died in World War II. So we are capable of doing that. And I think that allows us as the living to process things um, and to heal and it allows the dead to also be able to to feel like they can leave, to feel like they can move on a part of my well I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there because I'm about to move inside a slightly different tangent
0: okay but I have actually have two so like you were talking about how you don't like the idea of moving on like that as the standard terminology and I understand that, like that's a very common metaphor for this sort of transition especially it's like a geographic metaphor and even in the vision right you had a geographic metaphor yeah. it's a physical boundary that things needed to cross over so like in terms of like Deconstructing the metaphor a little bit, like what is the change that takes place when we talk about a spirit moving on? If it's not going someplace, or is it? Is it going is there a place that it goes? Or is it is it that something has to cause you know, like you can you can leave a town and your problems come with you because they're inside of you a lot of yeah. the time, right? Yeah. Um so like is it just like helping a like I don't want to, like, I am a social worker, right? But like, is it just helping a ghost do internal work or is it, is that too neat? Is that too pat?
1: No, I mean, so I think, I think for a lot of the stuff that I do, I think that kind of hits the nail on the head. I think the reason I don't like the idea of sort of like a crossover and stuff like that is because ultimately I want to ensure that I am not stripping agency or autonomy from Something that I'm working, especially some sort of intelligent being that I'm working with. Yeah,
0: Um, especially with like the COVID situation, it does feel like, especially when there's all this pressure, like please move on. This is a problem. We don't want to talk about it anymore. It just seems like another way of being like, ghost. You have become a problem. We would like you to leave. It's like doing hostile architecture for ghosts. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We. Yeah. We put.
1: Yeah. There. There's. There's nails on the rafters. The ghost can't perch there. Um. But. Um. But yeah. So it's this idea of of. One to a certain extent, I think the idea of like crossing over the way that it it's 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 construed in sort of in contemporary context or mainstream context, is again very rooted in this sort of maybe Abrahamic or specifically Christian context, and so part of me is trying also trying to move away from that, and just being also like no, like that's not you know this whole idea of like go to the light or whatever, it's like that's you know, if I'm working with a non-Christian spirit or something like that, uh, you know, we may not, we may be talking at cross paths towards each other because they're just like, I don't know what you're telling me to do because that's not a thing. Like what light? Like that is not a, a thing. I don't want to assume that the experience is universal for everybody.
0: Mm. So we all get sort of the, after, like, would you say that we get the afterlife that we we're expecting a little bit?
1: Potentially. I think for, part of me is, you know, I'm just like, oh, I don't really know what's on the other side. So uh, like, I don't know what the experience is like on the other side necessarily, But I think my role, what I try to do is is act as a facilitator and just say, like, hey, you know, whether it's working with some like a a spirit one on one and saying, what is it that, you know, you need? And it might be sort of this, you know, internal healing, internal work so they can figure out where they want to go to next. In my day job, I work in this capacity with a lot of folks, you know, and sometimes there are people who are just like committed to not healing for a lot of reasons, some voluntary, some involuntary. And then it's having this conversation of, of, you know, I talk about part of working with the dead is also like boundary setting. And in the mm. same way, um, when I do workshops about this, like, you know, I tell people, if there's one thing that I, I I could kind of pluck out of the conversation about how dead folks work uh, that I see a lot is that death doesn't suddenly make somebody a perfect person or an angel. You know, if somebody was a racist homophobe in life, chances are they're still a racist homophobe in death. And so, part of what that work might look like is setting boundaries. And in the same way that you set boundaries with living folks or living creatures or living spaces, that should also play into the relationships that you're doing that you have with the dead. Of of you know, establishing this is the extent to which I'm willing to work with you, or you know, I am not going to take this type of abuse. You know, and that's different for everybody. So some folks, you know, I know some folks who are just like, I just that is not a place that I a space that I feel comfortable in. For me, it's a space that I do feel comfortable in, but then I also have very clear boundaries of, of you know, like I'm not going to take abuse from you. You know, like we can work and have a conversation, but the moment that you are going to become aggressive with me or or whatever that might be, it's like then this this conversation is over, and maybe we'll readdress it, maybe we'll touch base later, but maybe we won't.
0: I mean, that's like really worth bringing up too, because I think this idea of like changing working with the dead from like power over to some kind of service, like they're like you're not turning yourself into like a martyr to do this right No, (laughs) it's interesting because like i think this idea of like feeling like the the spirit can't move on unless something is resolved in them or something is resolved in the community like with people that makes like that's very that seems very clear with like an animal with a plant is that a question of like because i know a lot of people i think are experiencing for example like a kind of ecological grief yes they also can't quite like the idea that like, because of climate change, because of deforestation, because, you know, you name a thousand different conf- like problems, like the world is dying in a certain way. And I think there's an overwhelming sense of grief. And is it helping people process, like the living process that, that you see as being a way of helping plant animal spirits, or is it something, because they're sort of, you said they were more abstract in a way. So like, is it, is it something more complicated with them? Because presumably yes. like a, like a, like a plant doesn't, also when you've, con- like a, like a, dead plant spirit a dead animal spirit are we talking about like an individual like you know this one coyote you got hit by a car or are we talking about like the spirit of an extinct you know species or what like what's the level that
1: we're at here yeah so based off of the experience that i had sort of in that like dream divination it was sort of at like at the individual level like it was a lot of sort of like individual spirits sort of like mixed into that larger milieu and that you know this is for that stuff, and I mentioned this in the essay too. I was like, that that was new to me. That was shocking. Like that is not something that I've really ever seen before or have engaged with. So I was like, I don't have a lot of familiarity uh, around that. Um, you know, I have, I have, you know, occasionally I have been visited by like spirits of like you know, past pets. Like I have um, my my cat that died a couple years ago sticks around and actually does some help, like does help me do a lot of sort of hedge work. So I have, you know, limited experience in that, but that is a space where I was, you know, I'm just like, oh, I'm really gonna have to find folks who, who do that type of work and kind of lean on it because yeah, like it's, it's a little bit confusing. I think the one that's the, the ones that stood out to me the most are these ideas, again, with sort of like spirits of place and by place also sort of being like, river spirits or those sorts of things where the river has been polluted or the river's no longer there because we dammed it up and re-diverted it and so now that entire biome or ecosystem that wetland that it used to feed is now entirely you know dead and gone and so this notion of especially for these sort of natural spaces that have been there for such a long time and then are so abruptly in sort of this geological timetable of it so abruptly just like shut down or killed or just you know erased the sense that i get from a lot of from what i saw there and in more limited sort of interactions is a lot of sense of confusion of just this sort of like if you woke up one day and your entire house wasn't there and so a lot of that i think is is working in spirits that don't process time reality sort of moral concepts or whatever in the same way that we do and working a lot more in the abstract and I think in some places, you know, some of that work is sort of more like ecological focused work of places where, you know, is it possible to revitalize a place? Are you able to, so, so I live in Maryland, for example, and um, they, this legislative session, they just passed um, this bill that mandates slash incentive, it's a Maryland Native Plant Species Act, and it it, it incentivizes and mandates, you know, the sale of more native plant species trying to kind of bring that back and help uh, push back against some invasive species and help to re-establish some native like ecological environments and so i think there's like that type of work that you can do for places to maybe try to revitalize them you know in some ways almost like rehoming a spirit i think too yeah. uh like oh who would like the foster river spirit until we can find a new home so i think there's that aspect but there are lots of things and we see this especially with like you know pipelines bursting or what a lot of what has happened was sort of like the clear cutting or like the the mining and the Appalachians and stuff like that of where a lot of these places are not going to come back and so how do you work with those sorts of spirits and again that gets back to when you have this sort of lingering debt or restless dead energy that sticks around it can become in the same way that like a corpse can rot, fester, and decay, and if it's in a communal body of water that people use, that it can create larger public health issues, then if you have these sort of lingering spirits that are still in this place that are morphing or changing or in some way sort of spiritually decaying, then they are sort of, I hate to say poisoning the well around them because it sounds intentional, but they are, they're they're adding a certain level of toxicity to that space around them
0: you you were mentioning you did sort of pose the question rhetorically like how do you work with these ones that aren't coming back right if you can't do the ecological restoration so how do you work with the ones that aren't coming back if you can't do the ecological restoration
1: yeah um and i I don't know that i have a good answer for that um because that's that's pretty new for me there are some folks that i know who do that sort of larger scale work again i mentioned like you know part of that is how do you have a conversation with something that doesn't process or think in, in the same sort of ways that you do. And so I think it's, you know, just folks who that is their skill set. It's almost like finding an interpreter or something of just like, okay, like, you know, um, if I'm working, you know, in life, if I'm working with a a student or something like that, who is deaf or hard of hearing, and we're on Zoom, then uh, we might be able to use a caption sort of thing, or I might have to, you know, get an ASL interpreter to help make sure that they're understanding what I'm saying or that we're able to communicate. So I think part of it is in finding the folks who are, are good at translating or communicating in a way that they understand.
0: And in terms of like doing this kind of work in general, like even like with, like beyond sort of these more difficult cases, like if people are called to this work, like what skill sets, because you say like, this is not a question, this is not necessarily a question of inborn ability. So like what skill sets should they be developing? And like what are the practices? Like what are you like is it are you thinking of like big community rituals of of grief? Or are you thinking of like daily tending kind of stuff? Like like what is the scale? What is the material? Like what are you doing? What are the objects? What are the moves? Where's the body?
1: <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean I think the answer to that is yes. Like I think it I think it's it's all those things. I think so. A skill set that I think is. It's a mix of a skill set and a mindset. So I think part of the mindset is understanding that like this isn't a one and done thing. It's not like oh I'm gonna get some friends together and we're gonna do like a little ritual. We're gonna light some candles. We're gonna do blah blah blah, and you know lo and behold like as much as I would love to live in a JRPG and be able to have things be that simple like (laughs) that is not the case. So but I think it takes sort of all stripes of that. So there are some folks who, I don't know if folks are familiar with Deepa Iyer, but they constructed this thing called the social change ecosystem map. So approaching it from sort of like this sort of social justice, social activism sort of perspective, I think a lot of folks when they come into that sort of work originally, a lot of people I think are just like, oh, to do this work means to be out on the street, marching, doing that sort of stuff. And for some folks, that's definitely their bread and butter. That's what they do. That's what they're capable of doing. Some folks for other reasons, don't do that. And they're just like, I don't feel safe doing that or I don't have the ability to do that, whether physical, financial or otherwise. And so then they're like, well, I guess I can't engage in this sort of work. I really love incorporating um, this social change ecosystem map because it shows that there's lots of different ways that you can do this. And so some of the examples of the, of the different things that all feed into this idea of uh, equity, liberation, justice and solidarity are where there are some people who are the storytellers. There are some people who are the disruptors. There are some people who are the frontline responders. There are some people who are the visionaries. And so all these different mindsets and skill sets collaboratively play into this larger movement process um, experience. And so I think the same thing applies for folks who want to do this. There's a place for individual sustained ritual working with your maybe specific locations or if you're in a place that has experienced uh, a mass death event, be it COVID or a climate disaster. Um, mass shooting. Um, you know, are you in a position where you can either step up or work with other leaders or people in your community to provide a space for people to to grieve, process, work work towards healing for the living, but then also for the dead. Are you able to provide? because some of that might also just look like providing spaces of remembrance.
0: Mm. I
1: think of when we do have, you know, our near daily mass shooting events that when you see these sort of pop-up memorials where like a whole fence line will turn into a space where there's pictures and flowers and things like that. I think those are very powerful on moving things that allow the dead to feel recognized and honored and remembered, but also allows the living to acknowledge that something happened and provide space for grief and to start conversations for healing. What I see in those sorts of examples is those conversations get shut down prematurely. Um, I think mm. for political reasons, cultural reasons, whatever it might be. So then are you the sort of person who can step in, keep those conversations going, whether it's on a community level, national level, whatever it might be. But also if if you can't, you know, just even like, can you host people in your house who want to have a conversation about how they're feeling? Can you do that like for your community? And then, you know, I think there are people who maybe their approach to this is less spiritual, less occult, And it's like, no, I really want to work on sort of lobbying or doing like community trash cleanup sort of things or whatever or there are folks who that's not necessarily something they feel comfortable doing and so can you coordinate you know can you use the the magic of the internet to coordinate these sort of larger national international sort of rituals or conversations or spaces i talk about a lot in my own personal work that for me i view activism as embodied ritual so for me the idea of ritual isn't all isn't just something that is confined to casting circle and doing something you know drawing you know drawing energy for me activism the way i engage in it is also embodied ritual so it's it's hard for me to talk about ritual and then like separate the two
0: yeah which i'm glad to hear because i feel like a common critique of of trying to do politically oriented magic is potentially that you know it seems like a way of of directing energy away from material change right like I yeah. think like, especially because say like when Trump first got elected and you had all these like you know we're gonna do a big public ritual to bind Donald Trump and it's it seems like okay that's not really what's yeah really which I'm all right?
1: for it. I love it do it um I think it if it if it helps you individually if it helps you as a community it helps to make a statement that's great but then once that ritual is done then what are the sort of material actions that your steps that you're taking to kind of continue that the spirit of what that ritual was attempted to accomplish
0: yeah it's not either or in terms of like more sort of like directly a cult ritual for the dead that you might do like especially because like i think this idea of like okay there's an individual spirit it has a it has a thing that it needs done or like it feels a certain kind of pain you can work with that that's but like that's very that sounds like a very much like an individual level kind of experience so for something like covid right where it's a mass death event where presumably like you know i'm in i'm in Beautiful New York City, Gomez. And like, you know, massive death. They had 18 wheeler, yeah, uh, yeah, like trucks, the
1: freezer trucks full yeah. of
0: corpses. Yeah. So, like, be very hard to work on an individual level, one would think. Mm-hmm. um Or like, it would just be exhausting, right? Because there's so many individuals. So, like, in that kind of scenario, beyond like the material sense of like working with the community to build a kind of healing and resolution, if you were working directly with the spirits of the dead on mass. Yeah. Like, what would you recommend for someone? Because presumably, I mean, COVID is a mass test event, like wherever you are, yeah. right? Like no one really got out of that one unscathed, yeah. uh, except New Zealand, apparently. But that's the whole, you know, they don't, they, they can listen to this podcast if they want to, that's fine. But like, yeah. uh, for everyone else, what ought they to do? Or what could they do?
1: So I think I think the the, the best example I have of that is a lot of the work that I do around like sort of queer ancestor work, queer ancestor veneration. So I have, um, in, the, in the last house that we lived in, I created a small outside outdoor, like queer ancestor shrine. And then when we moved, I like re-envisioned it into a larger uh, space that my husband um, refers to as the Queer Ancestor Temple Complex because I was like, oh, yeah, I want to turn this whole corner of the yard into this sort of like very vibrant living sort of thing. So I do a lot of work with that. So I do um, I do sort of tend that shrine. And so as an individual, uh, something that I do that is geared towards sort of larger dead community is the sort of Queer Ancestor Shrine work. I have certain rituals that I do that are kind of like holy days for me um, that I do specific sort of things. Something that I host in every June for the last few years has been a queer ancestor dance party, where uh, and I actually have a Spotify that folks that can access that uh, that's the, the, the playlist, and we keep adding to it all the time. But part of that is intentionally sharing space with uh, the larger queer dead sort of community of uh, getting together as like the queer living, but then in a sort of ritualized format, saying like. We also want to invite the queer dad into this space, whether it's the queer dad who were also club kids or if you're, you know, a queer dad from 200 years ago and you weren't able to like actually like party as your authentic self. Like here's a space for you to come in and like share space and time with us in just celebration and joy. And Mm -hmm. so doing, you know, doing stuff like that. So that that's some of what I do. Also, what I would consider to also be a part of that is and I've been a little bit delinquent in the past few (laughs) months because I'm also wrapping up a. Uh I'm enrolled in a seminary program. And so I'm wrapping I'm wrapping that up. And that was Cool. Yeah, that it's been great, but like, you know, it'd been a long time since i have been in school. And I don't know why I thought this wasn't going back to school. So I was like, oh no. Especially back school, it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I um but I I do uh, I try to do a monthly Queer Ancestor Spotlight and so um that I put on my blog. And to me, that is also part of um Again, this idea of activism as embodied ritual, and there are some folks, you know, like I did one. I did one for James Baldwin. I did one for Bayard Rustin. I did one for some other folks that are pretty more well known. But I really do try to find folks that people haven't heard of before, or places that people haven't heard of before, to kind of resurrect these stories and (laughs) resurrect. But um, to resurrect these stories, because I think you know it's this idea of like what is remembered lives, sort of mentality and for me a lot of what brought me into this almost sort of like psychopump role was specifically a pivot to queer-centered spirituality and specifically working with queer ancestors just because and again talking about how we as a, as a society excise death from things and excise death from the narrative, it, I think it is impossible to be a marginalized, part of a marginalized community in Western society. And part part of the experience of being a part of a member of a marginalized community in Western society, especially in American society, is death. It's uh, and, and we don't talk about that because, we don't talk about that because the systems in place, the, the powers in place don't want to talk about that because that would make them look bad. And so I think part of that is, is, intentionally bringing up you know the stories i tell aren't necessarily always happy ending stories but it's like this is important to know that you know this person or this organization existed or this place existed one of the ones that i i didn't know about was siwa oasis in egypt and it's this it was historically i forgot the the particulars of it because i think i wrote it like a year and a half ago but but yeah just finding these sort of like places from antiquity that were known for, you know, outside of Greece, because I think everybody looks at the Greeks and they're like, oh yeah, they were all gay. But like these other places around the and I try to be very intentional about finding as many gl- place, places or stories from around the globe as possible. Um, each post links to a queer ancestor map that I do through ArcGIS. And so you can visually then see like where these stories are all coming from and to see that it's a, it's a global story. So I think stuff like that, you know, storytelling, you can, and when I say, holding things for community that doesn't necessarily mean like replicating a mega church sort of thing community can be small so if you are in a rural town and you want to do something for acknowledging the queer dead and the only you know out queer there's only like five other out queer folks where you live and that might be the community that you're doing something for so it might be something small or it might be working together uh, across county lines state lines whatever it might be to kind of hold virtual space for things like that. So yeah, I think, I think I don't know. I feel like I've kind of moved away from the question of it.
0: I mean, there's something about this I want to, because I mean, like you, it's, it's implicit in all these things you're saying, but I feel like we should bring it to the, the level of the explicit here. like. These rituals are not mournful necessarily. These are not necessarily sad times. Like that idea of like, so like this queer ancestral altar, like I'd, I'd love to hear more details about it. Cause like they do like it's a living, thriving place, it sounds like lots of like I, I assume plants and colorful things.
1: Yeah, there's plants, I have um I have like a solar lantern that is by it. That's like a one of those candle flickery looking lanterns. So that way at night there's this this candle space there kind of pulling from the Folklore around, so people leaving candles out to like to make sure that the the spirits of, the lo- of their loved ones of the day can find their way home. But I have a lot of plants around it. There is I, I have a a small sunken terracotta pot that I put sand in that I use to uh, burn incense in. um But then I have like one of those big like garden looks like a shepherd's script sort of thing, so you can hang like a bird feeder off of it. So I have a bird feeder there so that way it's attracting life to that space Mm. um hanging on another sort of crook of that thing is a wind chime so like every time the birds land on the bird feeder like the wind chime is chiming so it's it's also an auditory experience and uh i've been very intentional we've been like i said we've been in our current house for a year and a half and so last year i was very intentional about making it to the plant nursery throughout the course of the year so that way i could plant things that would be blooming at different times of the year so that way there was, with the exception of like real deep winter, which we didn't get this year where I live, there's always something that's in bloom or at least green at that space. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was an intentional decision to to make it a multi-purpose space because it can definitely be mournful. You know, some of the rituals that I do are, so I'm, I'm, like I said, I was originally from Florida. I lived in Orlando for seven years before I moved up here. When people ask me where in Florida I'm from, I tell them Orlando because that's where I came out. That's where who I am actually started to become. Yeah. And um, I lived not too far away from for the last two years, three years, I was in a window. I lived not too far away from Pulse. Um, Pulse was also the first gay club I ever went to. So when that shooting happened, that was very personal for me. I had some friends who were there who uh, luckily are okay. But, you know, the the Wendy's across the street where they were dragging the the wound into the dying, like that was my bad day Wendy's. Like if I was coming home from work and having a bad day, I would like stop at that Wendy's. So it yeah. was a very uh, personal thing for me. And so that is one of my sort of holy days, I guess you can, for lack of a better term, if it falls during a weekday, I actually take that day off of work. And I have this sort of like all day contemplative, very intentional ritual that I do. That is a very mournful ritual. Like, but I utilize. Of, hmm?
0: Like, what is the what are the moves of this ritual? Like, what does it look like? Yeah, so
1: part of it involves like reading all of the names of the folks who, who who died there. There's there are some parts of it that I don't want to share. So Fair um, enough, yeah. But I, I incorporate, you know, since it's usually since it's in June, um, I incorporate like the queer ancestor shrine. It's also a space where I kind of allow other queer centered grief to kind of show up. So yeah, so like these rituals can be. I aim towards celebratory. I aim towards celebratory or angry more so than I do mournful. And in fact, something that I consider. So I did a I did a workshop with a, a good friend of mine a couple years ago for the Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival that was around spiritual activism. And I got to talk about one of my like one something that I think is one of the most powerful necromantic rituals that I've ever seen incorporated in the uh as activism and I don't know that the folks who were doing it at this time would have considered it a necromantic ritual but those who are familiar with uh, ACT UP AIDS action uh, uh ashes action in the early 1990s during the Bush one administration again this is you know during the height of the AIDS epidemic and uh, that's why I was very intentional earlier when I said like, oh, we
0: we've historically noted our mass death events, and I was like, well, some of them, not all of them, <laughs> Right. the politically advantageous ones, right? Yeah. Like the World War II memorial, the 9/11 memorials, they 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 really play into a particular narrative of American strength and American yeah. violence. So, like, yeah. very helpful to some people.
1: Yes, but at that particular time, you know, there really wasn't uh, a lot of conversation about that, or a lot of movement. In fact, there was mostly ridicule and intentional neglect and and not investing in trying to figure out what was going on to protect the community and so in the uh, ashes action uh, march uh, that act up did the first one and i want to say it was in 91 or 92 they marched on the white house and the folks in the lead ahead of the march had urns that held the ashes of their loved ones whether it was family members friends lovers who had um, died of aids or hiv uh, or complications resulting thereof Marched on the White House and, you know, you can't get all the way up to the White House. There's the fence there. But they dumped the ashes on like over the fence into the White House lawn. And to me, I'm like, this is this is such a, a powerful example of incorporating the dead in ritual and activism in something that hits all the notes of acknowledging community grief, acknowledging community outrage, demanding change, demanding protection of the living, demanding recognition of the dead. You know, I don't know if the folks who were engaged at the time <laughs> would have looked at it as like a necromantic ritual or, or or how folks would feel about me calling it that. But I saw that and I was just like, this is incredible. This is inc- This is so powerful. This is pulling in so many different strains, so many different energies into this very visceral. And was, like, even if you weren't participating in it, to witness it either live or on tv or if you look it up on youtube now it's still a visceral experience even if you weren't a participant
0: i mean just that idea of like approaching someone with power with a direct confrontation of death in that sense that like you should be haunted by the harm you have caused either literally or figuratively and with an act that could kind of achieve either like that's that's huge like not even like because like, I think so often when we talk about like necromantic curse work, it's something like, I say we, society, whoever's talking about Yeah. That. like, it feels like a way of sicking the dead on people, as opposed to being like, actually, you've got your own bone to pick with this person. Oh, God. Uh You've got your <laughs> own reason to be mad at this, at this person. So let me just give you the boost over the, the literal boost over the fence.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's to like, that's, get at them. Yeah. And again, for me, that comes down to this idea of power over power with, you know, I'm I am not somebody. How do I say this in the way that's not going to like? Ruffle a knock or something, but
0: get I, canceled I don't and then necromance yourself out of the cancel. It's fine.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't. You know, like I respect people who who uh, who for them the rule of three and stuff like that is part of their their spirituality, their cosmology and stuff like that. That's not me. Like you know, I am. I am fine with curse work. I'm fine with hexing and stuff like that. I don't. You know. It's not something that I do all the time, where I like pencil it. And I'm like, oh, it's Thursday, time to do some hex- like hexing. But again, especially in incorporating the dead and that sort of work, it's not this sort of Dungeons and Dra- Dragons esque sort of like, let me summon a shade and send it to against my enemy. Um, but it's the, it's that like, no, like, like you and I both have a common enemy or a common uh, issue or something like that. Let me raise energy to also empower you. To take action against this person or this organization or this whatever it might be
0: yeah i mean that's a really lovely thing to consider i mean like it's horrible right because we're talking about responses to violence and cruelty and like biopolitical genocide honestly but like this idea that being able to do something about it in that way i think is really Important like the people who are doing the things about it can be dead.
1: Yeah, and um, also that you can draw, um, you can draw a lot of strength, uh, I think, from them as well. I um, I went to, oh lord, what is time? I went to oh, so when so like in the Unite the Right to rally or whatever when they came the to DC, Charlottesville. What's it? Yeah, not the Charlottesville one, but one their 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 sequel to it or whatever. Oh they, okay, they came to DC. You know, I went to to the counter-protest, to marching in the counter-protest there. And I was a little bit nervous because I hadn't been sort of in a march in a long time, partly because in the last decade or so, I've developed like a chronic illness. And so my health isn't so great and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, do I, I had a lot of anxiety around kind of being back in that space. Yeah. Um. And I did, I actually wrote about this for this, uh this little, this pagan publication that I think doesn't exist anymore but it was called coffee table coven but my experience of working with the queer ancestor altar in sort of like really it's like the the morning of that march i actually this was in my last in my my previous house you know i spent the morning outside and sitting with that ancestor altar and just kind of telling them like i'm nervous about being in this place in this space and doing this but i also recognize that so many of you have been in spaces like this or spaces worse than this and really i think i was really trying to connect with sort of like like the the post-stonewall sort of queer ancestors of just like a lot of you showed up in, in places that were much more hostile and I could really use your support or your encouragement or your strength in this. And and I, I felt I felt like a deep sense of connection. I felt a sense of peace or reassurance. Not in this sort of sense that like oh great now I can go over there and I'm gonna be invulnerable. Like definitely still acknowledging that like I'm intentionally walking to a space that could be could be bad luckily well there weren't a lot of them that showed up they got their own metro they got their own police escort and then they left early or something like that so so much that we could talk about but it ended up just being this like larger counter rally that that continued throughout the day so it ended up being a very great experience but once i was there and i was marching and i i ended up sort of at, at the head of a group holding helping to hold a flag I could still feel their presence with me in a way that continued to make me feel, if not safe in that space, supported in that space. Mm. Um, So I think that's another way that you know that you can work with the dead to also say. I need to step into some of these spaces or continue the legacy or the work that you all were doing to, to maybe stop some of these systems or processes that resulted in you dying, but I'm scared or I'm afraid, or I'm not sure I know what to do. And I could really use your support or your guidance or your strength.
0: Mm, So calling them in, you're the sort of physical marker of the, it's almost like an icon with a bunch of like a step, like, you know, like a, a garden statue of the Virgin Mary, but like who's in there. Yep. Mm-hmm. tons of you know the whole comet trail of dead hello if you're hearing the sound of my voice it means you're listening to an abridged version of this episode to support the show and to get a full version of this episode and a bunch of other episodes head on over to patreon.com slash and sign up for the five dollar tier you'll be glad you did all right back to that interview So for you, like, I think, like, we were talking about this before we turned on the the recording thing, but do you feel like they're, like, especially looking at sort of the parallels between now and Germany uh, at the time, which arguably quite a lot, uh, like, where do you see sort of the spiritual, because you've talked a little bit about the idea of, like, incorporating spiritual things into activism, but, like, when we talk about, like, non-fascist, sorry, non-fascist, anti-fascist, like magic, I wonder if that's a weird Freudian slip. If I need to talk about like the the actually, I should probably do an episode investigating the unfortunate fascist history of a lot of American. Anyway, that's not important. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is, but not for right now. Like anti-fascist magic, like what what is that? Is it is it just sort of like incorporating magic into already existing kind of political movements or are we even like i mean because you mentioned that the white roses were they were non-violent like are are you willing to maintain that kind of non-violence or do you feel like maybe this is the time to start i don't know getting personal concerns from <laughs> uh, or something um. like that i should probably cut the name out because then that might become it's not an actionable threat to a specific person if it's magic right right really? yeah I mean, not. i'm gonna beep out the name it's fine well it's um,
1: also one of those things where it's just like to burn the witch means to admit that you think magic exists so right but yeah no i think my overall philosophy to it is this and i actually it's a it's a protest sign that a friend of mine made for me um is uh, uh do no harm but take no shit so i think that is overall my mentality or approach to it but with with you know other things that i probably shouldn't have recorded. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think so. I think for me it's like, yeah, incorporating a lot of uh maybe spiritual auditing to existing activism. But I honestly think like especially so if you look at specifically in sort of what's going on in the US and stuff like that, this sort of like Christian nationalist, uh autocratic, theocratic sort of movement is something anti-democratic movement, is something that is firmly rooted as saying as just being violently and ferociously against the idea of a multicultural liberal democracy. Right. So I think one of the things that that is super powerful is when we talk about spiritual activism. Like yes, yeah, so the White Rose movement that I referenced, like their activism, their so sort of like of like of what motivated them was their understanding of their Christianity. And I think when we talk about spiritual activism, when we talk about this sort of stuff in the U.S. sense, I think we oftentimes fall into the same sort of trap of them like things by default we're talking about christianity yeah and so i think you know for a movement that is so against this idea of multiculturalism i think one of the most powerful things that you can do is to be unapologetically and unashamedly pro whatever your spirituality is pro-pagan pro-muslim pro whatever it is and i think finding ways to incorporate that into activist spaces or into coalition building i think is one of the things that kind of like highlights what makes this idea of like multicultural spaces so beautiful? You know, I grew up in very, uh, especially once we moved to the swamp and stuff like that. I was in a very homogenous space. I was in kind of like active clan territory too. So, so you know, ever since then, I've always lived in cities. After I after I moved out of there, and I love it. I I absolutely love when I am going places and just walking from point A to point B. I hear I don't know how many different languages. I see however many different types of food and stuff like that. For me, that sort of vibrancy is something that we don't really bring into this sort of activist space. And that's something I'd like to see more of. And because when I say spiritual activism, I'm not by default saying like, I think Reverend, uh, for example, like the Reverend William Barber leading the Poor People's Campaign. He's a phenomenal person. Again, his work is rooted in his understanding of Christian identity, of the gospels, of liberation theology. And I'm not, you know, poo on that, but there's other ways to kind of engage or tap into spirituality to do a lot of that work. Um, I think a good example that we're seeing is actually, I think it's in Indiana, uh, where the suit against their uh, abortion ban is being led by, I think, three women, two of whom uh, identify as Jewish and one of whom identifies as pagan, I believe. And so they're they're contesting the abortion ban off of, you know, like well according to my religion, according to my spirituality, this is infringing on my rights. So I think, you know, how do we step up in more of those spaces? I think we've historically been very shy about it um, and ceded a lot of ground to the far right, the religious right. And so I think part of the work of like spiritual activism in this country is reclaiming some of that ground, not just for like a liberal Christianity, but also for like the quilt of all the different sorts of spiritualities that exist, because you also, because like, at the same time, you also have far right, like Orthodox Judaism, far right approaches to to Islam. You know, so again, like there's there's a there's a spectrum of stuff that I think for too long in this country specifically, we've seeded any conversation about religion to a far right extremist fringe.
0: So like a way you would sort of, I think it sounds like diverge from the original white rose movement is like, cause they were grounding this things in like, we are like, it was a nationalist project something. So like, we we're the real Germans sort Correct. of, and like, uh, you do see sort of analogs to that in, in the American left, I think a little bit where, or, or, or American liberals, which are they left? <laughs> Interesting question. But like, <laughs> like this, this tendency to be like, you know, actually I'm the real patriot because, you know, I care about our institutions. I care about the FBI. I love the FBI or whatever. And so like, you're not, it sounds like you're not. Advocating for that kind of thing, like this, is definitely much more of sort of like leaning into multiculturalism. Like, it sounds like an anti-nationalist way of of doing politics a little. bit Yeah, I, I, or is I, that I think too so. far.
1: No, um, I don't think it's too far. I think it's. I hesitate to have conversations around like what makes a real American or things like that because I, for me, democracy and stuff like that. It is a verb, not a noun. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think when you have conversations of of, well, no, actually, you know, when when American liberals or anybody says like, well, I'm actually a a real patriot, I'm with whatever, I feel like what it's doing is taking this concept of the American experiment and stuff like that and freezing it, taking a snapshot and saying, This is what it is henceforth. And you know, there's a lot of critique, deservedly so of you know the united states and stuff like that historically contemporary critique whatever but i think when you look at the framework that it provides i think the the overall american experiment i think is something that is is actually something that's worth preserving i also and i recently talked about this too i went on a facebook rant about this where i was you know was just like if you ever want to see people who actually care the most about sort of like these sort of supposed American ideals, like what's written in the constitution, what's written in the declaration stuff like that. You will never find people who care about it more than in the most marginalized groups in our society. They are the people who are actually pushing the conversation and saying like, well, if these are supposedly our ideals, then why am I not allowed a seat at the table? Why am I not allowed to access you know, full equality, these sorts of things. And then you have the people who are firmly in the center who are historically the people in power who are the first ones who are willing to throw out all of these documents that they claim to worship. So for me, I think, I think that's why I approach it from the sort of like multicultural perspective because to me, I think ultimately at the heart of what the American experiment is, is an experiment in providing a multicultural space where, free, where people can say, you know, I am free to be my authentic self in this space. Yeah, it's that's a messy answer because I think it's, it's still an answering process for me
0: i mean it's a, it's a good way of doing it because i think like you know your point to these people who seem who claim to worship these documents like you know the 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 so-called uh self-described like originalists or, or textualists, <sighs> yeah. right where it's like you know it's like oh when i say that dead people have said something to me and that's why i'm behaving in a certain way i'm weird yeah. but when you know a leo says that uh, the ghost of Thomas Jefferson is telling him what a what a document means. Oh, he's normal, even though yeah, he's the one who wears the robe all the time. And I only do it some of the time. But anyway, I think with this this idea that like, yeah, like maybe when the framers frame the constitution and they are like, we want to be like a multicultural society, we want both Presbyterians. Right and baptists yeah right where like that's not what that word means anymore multicultural and like so like we were actually holding on to the living word as opposed to the dead exactly yeah the dead thing like i think like that's a that's a useful thing to talk about we've been doing this for quite some time so i feel like i should i should let you go if people want to learn more about you and the stuff you're doing like where should they go what should they do i mean obviously the blog but let's i mean even like where is the blog yeah. Think, uh, uh, yeah,
1: so the, the website is whiterosewitching.com. Um, you can sign up for the newsletter. I send out just a monthly newsletter. I try not to clog up people's inboxes. And the newsletter is at the end of the month, and it's sort of a roundup of everything that was in that month. I also am pretty active, very active actually on Instagram. Um, you can find the link to the Instagram through the website as well. I do have a Facebook page for it just because I am I'm, I'm an old, I guess. So uh, So I still use that. I do for, for better, for ill, and forever long it lasts. I, I also do have a presence on Twitter. <laughs> so uh, you can also link to that uh, through the website as well. Twitter is probably where I am at my, at my spiciest when it comes yeah. to sort of like politics and stuff like that. So if that's what you want to kind of get out of me, then Twitter is probably the space for that um, <laughs> for as long as that's allowed and it is up. So
0: like it's... It's so weird to be at the hospital bed of Twitter every day and just be like, when? Yeah. Who's going to pull the plug on this? When's it going to yeah. go? Okay, so you're on Twitter. Um, I'll put links to things in the show notes. That uh, Queer Ancestry map, that's on your website as well.
1: It is, yeah. I should probably do like a direct link to it, but any of the Queer Ancestry spotlights at the bottom of them have a link to the Queer ancestor map. Um, yeah. Oh, and then also um, uh, for folks who are interested in like community sort of stuff through a local like mid-Atlantic organization called Stone Circle Council, I host a monthly LGBTQ plus Pride Circle via Zoom, so it's it's on a Wednesday. It's not a static Wednesday of each month; it kind of depends on my schedule. But all the dates are pre-planned out, so you can see stuff. But there, are the it's on Wednesdays, 7:30 p.m. Eastern Time is when the Zoom space opens. Um, Circle starts at 8 p.m. At which place, at which point we don't let new people in. So the first 30 minutes is general chat and chill.
0: Cool, and I typically ask people for one last little like nugget. That they want to leave people with at the end of these things. But before I do, I feel like I want to start doing like, again, I keep thinking about the James Lipton thing. Like, I feel like he's, his ghost is in my, or he's still alive, isn't he? His living ghost.
1: Yeah. You say that, you say that. And I just think of like the Adult Swim spinoff between the ferns. So.
0: Right. Right. It does sort of feel like between, I mean, I feel like I am much more of a Zach Galifianakis, but I'm not as mean. Well, I could be, that could be the the change to the show as I start becoming a bit of a, a bit of a dick to my guests. Um, <laughs> which maybe it's time to to start doing struggle sessions but i am curious like because i i do because i feel like we keep talking about like the take no uh was it um cause no harm take no shit what's your favorite curse
1: my favorite curse Ah, oh. maybe it's because i struggle with insomnia but i really love depriving people of sleep wow
0: okay how would you do a thing like that i love
1: it um, I actually, so that is actually something that I, I incorporate the dead with a lot, actually. And so, and again, it's not like a summoning of a shade and being like, oh, but like I do, I do. I, so so one, one that I'll share is uh, around sort of sound time, uh, me and a friend do have a something that we've been doing for several years, where it's sort of a, a, a queer spirit wild hunt sort of situation where we uh, recruit those who are willing to be part of it and we have you know list of names that we read out changes year to year some of the names are consistent (laughs) um and uh for for that for that night it's a uh it's a go forth
0: and be merry sort of situation for the queer dead you love that premise because like you know when you think about like a personal concern right and a curse right like Mm -hmm. oh i have someone a bit of someone's hair a piece of like cloth from their t-shirt or something like that the idea of like putting that into a hunt where it's like yeah i'm giving the bloodhounds the scent yeah and sending them to kill like yeah i god i love that um okay so before we go before we shut it all down what's the last thing you'd want to leave people with is just like advice a thought some wisdom or just like a call to action even
1: a call to action i think is so i used to do a lot of work that was sort of more activist education where i was sort of speaking out of community into sort of larger spaces and I've changed track in the last few years just because it came became, became too just exhausting emotionally mentally physically spiritually and so a lot of work that I do is sort of in community work so I guess this message is more so for like in community folks whether they're like LGBTQ plus identified disabled whatever you might be but I think the, the the most important thing that we all can be doing right now is to be unapologetically joyful and I think that is a powerful form of magic and a powerful form of activism, especially in the face of people who are, one, trying to erase us, and two, trying to malign us as these sort of depressed, deviant sort of things. Um, and as we, you know, it's it's mid-April, not sure when this is gonna post, but it'll be pretty close to Pride Month, I guess. So, you know, as we as we slide into that time of, of the year, I think, you know, pride is a riot, yes. I think, you know, uh, but also pride is is joy and pride is celebration. And I think that is probably one of the most important and meaningful things that we can do right now.
0: Hell yeah, love it. Thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great.
0: Many thanks to White Rose Witching. I will have links in the show notes to where you can learn more about what he is up to. I also have links to where you can buy tickets to that book-based divination class I'm doing on June 9th, and where you can donate to For the Ghouls. In editing this episode, I tracked down a video of one of those actions that White Rose Witching was describing during the interview where ACT UP activists took the ashes of the dead to the White House and, and dumped the ashes over the White House fence. And I'll have a link in the show notes where you can watch that for yourself, but I, you know, I don't know what I was expecting. Maybe like I I think I'm so used to the idea of Ceremonies around death being, you know, solemnity being Silence even uh, And also I'm so used to I think magic or anything that feels like sort of necromantic being done again with solemnity or at least like a kind of sneakiness You know, I was I was out uh, this week collecting um virtue-laden dirt for something and I, you know, was trying to keep a low profile and I think I project that onto magical workings. So the thing that really walloped me watching this was just how loud it was, this thundering admixture of grief and rage, but also I think a certain catharsis and joy, too, as this action was taking place i'm gonna play it for you now because it's just such powerful stuff really incredible. And I think this talk also put me much in mind of, um, so the, the social work program that I just finished, part of how you, you sort of wrap things up is so you do this big capstone project. And the project that I was doing was proposing a research study into memorial services at substance use clinics, which is a phenomenon that I've observed directly, and I, I assume must be much more widespread than my experience and should be documented, I feel like. But part of putting that together was doing a review of the literature about like what is what is the current state of literature around uh, funerals and their psychological effects, what they can do. And I came across a couple of papers that I feel like are really relevant, so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight them for you. You know, if anybody wants me to send you a PDF, let me know. But an area of the research that I feel like is sort of relevant to the conversation is that. Well, there are many interesting functions that, that memorial services can, can perform for people. They do things with social cohesion, which are really interesting. They do things, uh, potentially, you know, theorized, all of it is provisional, of course. Or they do things with providing an acceptable receptacle for certain kinds of emotional expression. They also do interesting work transmuting the emotions associated with death. So, for example, Crooker uh, and colleagues, of 1994, talked about the importance of guiding those experiencing grief into transmuting that into anger without undue guilt, such that anger can be channeled into social action. And Bordere, 2009, was looking at the funerary customs of New Orleans and found that the idea of having like a big sort of you know, musical funeral, like a big procession, was able to turn sorrow into joy, which is a really interesting phenomenon. There's a there's a quote from the article where a participant in the study says, um, "And my friends, they stopped crying, and everybody started dancing." So I think I think there's this really interesting question to be asked, right? Like, how do you use a funeral to stop and pay attention and hold space in a way that often we are encouraged not to do, right? We're, we're told to move on, to, to, you know, to keep it moving. Because, you know, you can't hold up the works with your weeping. Uh, but how do we not only resist that urge to be pushed forward, but how do we also claim that moment to find a way to reopen ourselves to the idea of a future? Because I think that is one of the things that i i feel like is a hard thing to hold on to these days as i sit in new york city enveloped in smoke (laughs) that idea that there there can be a future and we can decide what it is instead of grimly bracing ourselves for what others choose it to be for us thank you so much for listening thank you so much to everyone who supports the show on the patreon five dollars a month gets you a bunch of bonus stuff it's real good our theme music was performed by Sebastian Befestam and recorded by Foot Lee. This has been Witch Hassle. Good luck with the work ahead.